This episode contains spoilers for 1942's Casablanca, as well as some strong language. If that's alright with you, then please enjoy the show. And remember, we'll always have Paris. see me i i don't know you're kind of hard to make out um what i uh you're, it's kind of blurry uh well are you actually looking i don't know even know what i'm supposed to be looking at i mean what am i looking at me oh well here's looking at you kid <laughs> get it <laughs> which i can actually say because i am older than you oh yes quite quite yeah <laughs> And with that, uh, hello, welcome to the Movie Mixology Podcast. Uh, we're your hosts. My name is Pat. I'm Marissa. And on this podcast, for those of you who are just tuning in for the first time, we watch a film and then take a drink that appears or is from or is inspired by said film. And we enjoy both very, very greatly. So if you couldn't tell by that intro skit, uh, it's just a fun way to introduce the movie, obviously, but we're doing a classic movie that I don't know if a lot of people um, who are young millennials like ourselves have really seen, unless they're big movie fans. Um, the film is 1942's Casablanca, which ooh. is super popular. Yeah. Ooh. ooh, ooh. Um, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting movie because I'd, I'd argue it's probably the most influential movie that we've done so far on this show yeah i don't know i mean hocus pocus might be a little bit more oh influential my God. <laughs> Jeez. okay hocus pocus is up there but i mean no yeah you're you're definitely right i think this is um you know one of those movies that is not only a classic but is you know one of the classics it's just kind of like the movie that's been quoted and referenced so much that it's almost like when you watch it, it's a strange experience because you feel like you're just watching something, you know, you kind of talked about this when we were watching it, something that's just been referenced over and over again that you don't even feel like you're watching a movie. You feel like you're watching like almost a parody of the movie. Exactly. Like <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. Exactly. Cause you feel like, Oh my gosh, I've heard this line so many times before. This is where it's from. It's just used like so normally and not for a joke. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I completely agree. Um, so that's the film. And as for our drink, we are drinking a French 75, which is a gin cocktail that appears in the movie um, about two-thirds of the way through uh, when there is a f German soldier stationed in Morocco. Um, <laughs> well, we're not going to get into the whole history of it. You can look up the history of World War II and German occupation of Morocco via Vichy, France, if you want. It's a fascinating history. But essentially, there's a German soldier walking with a French woman, and he orders French 75s. I think she orders it, right? I think it's the German man, if I'm not mistaken. And she says, I want a lot. I want it from like, and then points one side of the bar to like the other side mm -hmm. of the bar, implying 
I want a shitload of these <laughs> and I really want to drink some gin and champagne. Um, so we're drinking these currently right now out of these little lovely champagne flutes. Uh, you can even hear the clink of the glass when we, uh, when we cheers. So cheers. That is the sound of gin and champagne and lemon juice. That's basically all there is in a French 75. I mean, so the recipe that, um, that I found online, and I'll put the link in the show notes, is a one half ounce simple syrup, then one half ounce of freshly squeezed lime juice, then one ounce of gin. We use Gordon's gin for this one. And you shake that in a cocktail shaker over ice, strain it into a champagne flute, and then you top it with champagne so that, you know, bubbles gets to the top, and then you garnish with a slice of lemon peel. So another gin drink to add to our arsenal. What do you think of this drink, Marissa? I like it because I think I'm not a huge champagne or even white wine person really at all. But you love sour. Yeah, I do love sour. So this actually makes it taste good to me, um, <laughs> this kind of wine. I mean, I'll drink it for like celebrations and stuff, but I think this I could just see myself drinking, you know, casually or for fun. Um I like the sour aspect. I think adding a little bit of sweetness to it kind of balances out the real dryness of the champagne too. Yeah. And then also the dry gin kind of makes it like, you know, very similar to the martinis we made before with gin. Yeah. I mean, gin's just such a dry drink, but uh, it goes great in a lot of cocktails. So we've been enjoying the hell out of it. Yeah, I think when you add the cocktail elements to it, it's good. I don't know about gin by itself, but some people drink that. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's some some gin's really good yeah. by itself. But I don't know about this plastic candle Gordon's gin that I used in this in this particular French <laughs> well, seventy five. We're getting good use out of it. Yeah, lots of miles being put on this bottle. So with that, um, let's talk a little bit about Casablanca itself. Um, this is. The 1942 Best Picture winner, and it was released, Ooh. you know, when it w right when the U.S. was kind of starting to enter World War II, and it's kind of a contemporary movie in that sense because, you know, the United States entered the war in 1941, December, and just a few months later, this movie comes out because, you know, allies invaded Europe and started to kind of liberate some of these places and North Africa where this movie takes place. So it was pretty timely. And I think that that's kind of going to color a lot of the themes of this movie, at least the way it does for me looking back mm -hmm. 70, 80 years later, whatever it is. Um, and it, I think it, it makes this movie kind of timeless because to this day and knock on wood, that that doesn't ever change. It's one of the worst conflicts. It, it's the worst conflict of all time, right? World War II. And yet the story that is being set in that backdrop is very timeless and still applies today. And as we've talked already, influences pretty much everything that's going to come after it in terms of like an, an epic tale set in this time period. I, I completely agree. And you may not know the answer to this question. I'm just curious if you had looked it up at all when you were reading into the history of the movie. Um, were they filming this movie before they knew that we were ent going to enter into World War II? Um, I think that they, I, I'm not entirely sure. I think they were filming 
pretty much in the early parts of 1940 and 41. Um, but apparently this movie came out like uh, right around the time that they were invading North Africa. So yeah, I think it, it was definitely um, being filmed prior to that. You mm-hmm. know, Warner Brothers was probably, you know, getting plans to do it. And according to uh, this source that I'm looking at right here, um, it looks like they, it was, it's a book, right? By Fran- Charles Francisco. You must remember this, the filming of Casablanca. They were supposed to film it in uh, really early 1942, like April. Um but there was like a lot of delays. Uh, so it started in the spring. So by that point, United States was in the war. So they've turned this movie around like really fast. <laughs> and to say the least, because I mean, they they had li- almost no time really to, to release this and still make the Oscars cutoff that they wanted to make. So it was released, says January 1943. Mm-hmm. But okay. it, and it premiered at the Hollywood Theater in 1942, which is oh, why okay. it was it was given wide release like the next year. But in 1942, it premiered in Hollywood oh, to okay. coincide with that Allied invasion of North Africa. Mm, so it's okay. kind of like you know a lot of <laughs> a lot of timely decisions being made by the people making this movie. Um, so that's probably one of the reasons why it, it's so well made as it is because i think everybody who was on board making this movie writing this movie had seen a lot of that stuff firsthand you know it was based on a play um by and then the screenplay was adapted by a a bunch of different writers um directed by michael curtis and and screenplay by julius epstein philip epstein and howard cock um, and the, the f- three of those screenwriters kind of all came together and had different ideas of where they wanted this movie to go. But according to Roger Ebert, they all kind of synthesize and make like a really good, like really com- comprehensive, cohesive story. And wow. it is a really good script. But as you and I were talking about when we were watching this movie, this is one of those scripts that's like you blink and you'll miss a very key detail. Like it's oh, a, definitely. it's a lightning fast script. Everybody's talking like a, in barbs and in like veiled insults and veiled threats. But yeah. It, I would recommend watching this with subtitles. Yeah. Um, and I know that a lot of people don't like watching movies that, you know, are, if they're a native speaker of the language with subtitles, because it can be distracting. But honestly, Patrick started me on watching movies with subtitles and I realized that it's actually really, um, you know, if you've already seen the movie maybe once before and you're rewatching it sometimes um, too, it can help you catch a lot of things that you missed originally or even just help you follow the plot more yeah. easily because, you know, a lot of times, especially in these older films, the sound may not be the best and you may not just be able to hear what they're saying. Um, and I think, like you said, in a movie like this, the dialogue is part of what makes it so, uh, you know, timeless. And so I think that, you know, especially for classic movies, you might want to um, look at them in, in different lens and try watching them with the subtitles. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And thank you for saying that. Um, you know, obviously, I think film should be experienced in the best way you possibly can. Um you know, some people that's on their phones with headphones and you can kind of catch everything and hear everything fine. Other people, um, you know, 
it's different for every person, your particular situation. And That's so true. if it's tough for you to like hear every piece of dialogue, wherever your setup is kind of like ours, um, definitely watch with subtitles. If you want to catch everything the first go around, um, or maybe don't, maybe just enjoy the visual of it. Maybe if you enjoy that part of film more than any of the screenwriting or any of the audio, uh, go ahead and watch it without and just come back to it as a, and enjoy it again. Maybe try to get a deeper understanding. That, that's what makes movies yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, every time you can go back and and even tweak your, like you said, the type of way that you watch it and you'll probably find something new. Mm -hmm. For those of you guys who have never seen the film and would like to, it is currently streaming at the time of this recording on HBO Max um, or go to the library and check it out. <laughs> yeah, it'll probably be there. <laughs> guaranteed your public library has a copy of this movie. All right. So with that, let's get into the three things we loved the most and need to talk about absolutely without <laughs> any hesitation about Casablanca. You know what time it is? Triple shot. It's time for triple shot. Okay, Marissa, would you like to tell me? what your first shot is after you take a drink of this bubbly French 75. All right. Okay. So <laughs> this um, movie, like a lot of other Hollywood classics, establish a lot of ideas and types of characters that later become sort of um, cliche, I guess you would say, but at the time were new or um, something that was really popular or interesting. And one of those things I think that this movie establishes is the idea of um, a character that is sort of an aloof, cynical leading man. <laughs> the, oh um, my God, your favorite. The, like, the idea, it really is a cliche now. I mean, like, the leading man who is like the hero of the story, but also pretty cynical, also has like a dark past whatever. Um, and Humphrey Bogart, you know, he was this person in so many movies. Um, he is this person in this movie. Um, and he also is this person in other movies, uh, like the big sleep, things like that. Um, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yeah. There's so many that he's in that I, I still haven't even seen. So hopefully we'll get to do that. Maybe even as part of this podcast or future projects. But, um, I think, <laughs> definitely his character in this movie is literally it says like in the description on imdb a cynical american um and that is his character which is um rick and you know of course rick is this guy who leaves america and goes to a foreign country to kind of escape his problems he's also been involved in these like different types of <laughs> battles and underground operative stuff that we don't really know right yeah and then he comes here and he starts like his own bar right and i think this is just used in so many other movies like with action movies a lot of times it's like if they make a sequel or something well you're you know leading man years have passed and he's in on some foreign island and he started his own bar or something like that's used so many times or um like this character you just have even in rom-coms they use this model so often where the leading man is sort of this grumpy cynical guy who you know can't be you know they even make jokes in this movie about 
how his relationships with women are that he doesn't really care either way. He just, you know, talks to women. He has affairs with them, whatever, but he doesn't really care for them. And, you know, of course, there is this woman in his life who I think it's kind of interesting, the idea in this movie that um, the woman that he really loves and who kind of is um, a play on his personality, mm-hmm. Ilsa, is actually someone that is from his past as opposed to somebody that he meets during the movie. And that kind of makes for an interesting love story that she comes back mm-hmm. into his life. Um, but still, same kind of concept where... He is this like grumpy man. You of know. all the gin joints in the world, she had to come <laughs> into mine. That's yeah. a, that's another quotable line oh, yeah. that you hear all the time. So I think like Mr. Bogart, right, is a model for so many future like leading men to the point where, you know, when you get into the 80s, late 90s, it almost becomes a cliche, his type of leading man. You know, by then I feel like we were getting kind of tired. And so then you get the leading men who become like these ultra buff, like Arnold Schwarzenegger types who really don't have any sort of suave or any sort of like, not that Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't have a good personality, but the characters he played often don't, don't have the most interesting personalities, right? Um, but I think for a long time, the leading men were based off of um, this idea of like kind of the the silent person with the mysterious past so that you were kind of hooked and curious about what what is this guy about? What is he going to do? I can't really tell because he doesn't talk very much. Everyone seems to like him, but he, he doesn't want to drink with other people. He wants to stay off to the side by himself. And I think originally in movies like where they had characters like this, it was a plot device to be like, oh, we want the watcher, the viewers to be interested to see what's going to happen with this guy because he's not giving much away. Right. And that kind of like interestingness is so original for this character. And let me just say, you know, I feel like I think some trivia here, um, maybe one of the reasons why Humphrey Bogart just kind of radiates that that gruffness and so believable as this (laughs) dejected dude. Uh, He was born on Christmas, so... You already know he didn't get birthday presents. He just got Christmas <laughs> and birthday presents. December twenty fifth, eighteen ninety nine. He wasn't even born in the twentieth century. Yeah. So he's seen some shit. Um, he served in World War One in the Navy. He's definitely been around the world, seen you know some things at least in Europe. Yeah. <laughs> so he's got like the worldly quality to him. Married four times. Wow. <laughs> I mean, and he died in 1957 um, from esophageal cancer. Oh, man. Probably due to smoking and drinking all the time, you know? Well, yeah. In this movie, he's only 43, but he looks like he's like 57 or He looks 16. a lot older than he actually is. Yeah, I mean, is. and that's something you Especially and I by today's talk standards. about all the time is how men and women... Um, back then, back then looked, you know, you look at the yearbook photos of kids in high school and they look like they're 40 years old, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and, and a lot of it was, you know, the smoking and drinking and things like that. And you don't really have a whole lot of these gruff kind of characters like, um, Rick anymore because all the leading men are, uh, very baby faced because they have good, you know, yoga and, um, strictly you know good skin fruit diets i don't know what they have in hollywood now but where you know they're very well taken care of by their personal trainers whereas you know back then it was like well you know you just smoke and you show up on set and 
that's that. That's what it is. <laughs> awesome stuff. Well, I, I appreciate your first shot. Um, let's go on to uh, my first shot, which isn't too far off from yours, to be honest, except I'm rather than talk about Rick, the character, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Rick's place of business. Ooh. Rick's Le Café Americain. I believe that's how you pronounce it, which I think is just American cafe. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty straightforward with what it's doing. Um, I feel like this setting is one of the most iconic in film history. And, you know, it didn't really hit me the first time I watched this movie. For those of you guys listening, full disclosure, um, this is our second time watching this movie. Watched it a few years ago before we had this podcast. And this is our first time we watched it, like kind of knowing the base plot and we're able to really like lean into the details, pay Mm -hmm. attention. Um, And so we were watching it and I just, I get struck by how this setting of like, it's a bar, it's a cafe, it's a casino, (laughs) it's a place of illicit business where people are making deals because um, for those of you who have not seen Casablanca, it's set against a place, well, World War II, obviously, but the plight of people who are trying to escape Europe to America by going through Casablanca and getting on a flight to Portugal, and then from Portugal, you could fly to the United States or take a boat to the United States, rather, um, and escape the war. Um, But to do that, you need a visa, you need a travel document, and there's now an illicit trade. There's an illegal trade of of these travel documents in Casablanca during 1941 when this movie is set. And so you've got deals being made, just backdoor deals, some with involving Rick, who's the owner and proprietor of the establishment. Some is just like, you know, there's like multiple national nationalities represented here. You know, you've got um, native Africans, you have all these Europeans who are like descended or have lived there because of colonial um, practices that are going because Morocco used to be a colony of France. Um, so you've got a lot of French people. You've got the German people who are occupying there or like investigating the death of Germans officials who were killed because they had tra- travel documents. You have Chinese immigrants. You have Italian immigrants. You've got all these like this melting pot of people all in Rick's Cafe. And I just couldn't help but think of like other times I've seen that same kind of setup where you've got this bar where all these things are going on at once and all these like nationalities are represented and everybody's kind of got like a crazy story happening at the same time. You know, it, it reminded me a lot of, um, the cantina in star Wars where you just walk (laughs) in and like, you've got the main character story happening, but all around there's like, God, who the hell knows what that thing is over there. And in star Wars, it's some, cool looking alien but in Casablanca it's somebody trying to deal their way out of this political um crisis you Mm -hmm. know I just thought that was like so fascinating it's such a cool location the outside looks very you know 1940s with the neon Mm -hmm. sign it looks kind of like a speakeasy which you know maybe it was modeled after because it was founded by an American and then you've got a jazz pianist singer Sam entertaining everybody just with his he's leading a a jazz band but he's like taking center stage playing piano and singing at the same time so a lot going on yeah it's so true that's such a good point and they even like try to show you that at the beginning when they do sort of like a pan of the whole um 
cafe where they show you Sam playing the piano. They also show like a woman just trying to sell her diamonds, but um, unsuccessfully to get money to try to travel. They show the gambling and the gambling, like, you know, some of the local officers are involved in the gambling, but it's technically illegal there. So much corruption. It's very interesting. Like you said, um, and Rick, you know, his attitude toward everything officially is I, whatever kind of business people want to do here. I don't stick my neck out for nobody. <laughs> yeah, uh, they can do it. I'm not going to get involved. But the whole thing is that, um, which character is it who plays um, Lu- Louis? Um, Louis Renault. Louis yeah. um, s- tells him constantly, I think you're a sentimentalist at heart, Rick. Um, and Rick is is like, you know, I really don't care. But he proves throughout the movie time and time again that Rick, he really is a sentimentalist. He really does care about people, including his customers. And he does little things for them throughout the movie to try to help them out. Um, and he tries to do the right thing, even if he won't admit that he's doing it, um, which makes for an interesting character. <laughs> oh, 100%. And we'll get more into that when we talk about... Um probably our our second shots probably have to do something <laughs> with that um knowing yeah. knowing how you like to to talk about uh people that like to do the right thing all the time because <laughs> you love to do the right thing and so the, oh wow thank you <laughs> i think this guy speaks to you <laughs> a little bit um so yeah that's it for my first shot why don't we go on to your second shot okay so i think that um This movie, so I'm again kind of looking at, I guess, the theme of my takes for this podcast is about, you know, some of the, um, what later films draw from this film, because this film is so influential, right? Mm -hmm. And there are so many things when you watch it that you just think, oh, that people took that from this movie, right? And one of them would be like the character of Rick being this kind of aloof bar owner, as you said. Um, and that, that idea of like, um, this kind of, uh, man who keeps to himself. Another thing that I think this movie kind of popularizes, and it also is just, you know, a lot of movies during this time, but I think this movie especially is when you have two people like Rick and, um, Ilsa who are kind of in this not forbidden love, but it's, it's a little bit different dynamic in this movie, but kind of this, like they have this longing for each other because they weren't, were once in love, but then couldn't be together. And then now they're brought back together. Um, the idea of just the way that the camera and the actors and actresses portray that longing. And I think one scene that really speaks to me is after Elsa goes into the cafe and she realizes that Rick, her former love is the owner of this cafe and she's kind of, you know, asking Sam, her old friend, where's Rick, where's Rick? And and she just kind of is by herself for a little while and just thinking about the past and thinking about Rick. Um, She just kind of stares off like into the distance and she's got this very intense look on her face and it's probably like 25 seconds of just her face. She's got this really like deep longing face. Yeah, where she's just... You know, she really does look like forlorn. She looks like so many emotions mixed into one. And, you know, you watch something like that now and they might make, you know, make jokes about if somebody did that, it might be like a 
cliche or a, a joke now if like they, they pan on somebody's face in a movie and they they look longingly you know yeah. but i think that this movie really popularized that idea of like longing and love and and using sort of the camera using these people's faces and especially i think um the actress who plays ilsa ingrid Berg- bergman mm-hmm. um she's a wonderful actress and she's she, incredible in this yeah she's amazing and i think just her face acting alone like in those kind of scenes uh, just picks so many different emotions that you learn throughout because she she's she loves Rick, but she also, you know, loves her husband who before she had thought was dead. And she's kind of torn between these different ideas. She's also a protector. She wants to protect her husband. She wants to protect Rick from different issues within the war. Like she's got so many emotions going on and she's able to portray all of that and all of this stirring, you know, with her classic Hollywood stare, you know, and I think that classic Hollywood stare is something we all think about with classic movies and, and movies that take from this even to today. Um, but I think that she definitely, I mean, I would go as far as say she started that and, and even um, Bogart in this movie too kind of started that trend of looking longingly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean that, that, that just is kind of old Hollywood in a nutshell. Yeah. I mean, you know, that, that makes me really want to go back and see this movie really made me want to go back and see some of Bergman's work because I mean, she's just such a good classical Hollywood actress. I mean, she mm-hmm. looks great and has this like uh really great stare. Like you just said, where, you know, some, when the music swells and like, if, if you notice this movie, this movie is in black and white, which I know might be a turn off to a lot of our listeners, but I guarantee you when you're seeing the scenes with Ilsa, Ingrid Bergman's characters, I swear, like, some of the shots of her face and her eyes, like, they kept a lot of, like, they might be makeup, it might be lighting, I don't know, but they kept some effect around her eyes where they almost seemed to, you know, shine in a lot of the shots, which, I I mean, I, I feel like it adds to the kind of romanticism that they're trying to go for in this movie, definitely. But I, I feel like you have to, you know, have a certain acting capability to really pull that off. And I think she does. Yeah, I think that the woman, women of her, of this time, the actresses would definitely like have that kind of like ability to, to be very like, I think that, like you said, it's hard to describe the classic Hollywood kind of attitude, I guess. It seemed they almost have like a sort of power where they, a lot of their, you know, of course there were some movies and a lot of depictions of women during this time that were not great. But I feel like a lot of the classic, like Ingrid Bergman's character in this movie is pretty like powerful she's pretty independent in many ways she speaks her mind she even pulls a gun at one point you know and i think we kind of lose some of that starlet power power in like maybe the 60s and 70s when you start getting like the female bond characters and the female extras that just are there to be like in a bikini or something Mm -hmm. and they're not really like these powerful powerhouse actresses um, so it's kind of interesting to look back and see these 40s and 50s films where you do still have these um, women who are interesting characters. And then I think that power kind of gets stripped away from a lot of female actresses in the 60s and 70s. And then you get sort of the feminist revolution in the 70s 
And then you get some stronger female characters going into the 80s and 90s. Still nothing like we have now, but it's just, yeah, watching this, um, you kind of think, wow, it's interesting how this was 42, but she actually is an interesting character. Um, whereas, you know, three decades later, you think that a lot of female characters would be even more progressive, but they really kind of regressed in many ways. Yeah, <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. Um, so that is a great take by you. Thank you for, for pointing that out. Um, and we should definitely watch more of both Bogart and Bergman's work because I feel like this is just a, a super team up for them, but mm-hmm. I feel like they both have incredible careers in their own right. Yeah. Um, spanning a ton of great directors, ton of classic films and discovering that stuff is kind of what we love to do with movies. And it's one of the reasons we, we really wanted to start a podcast based around something like, you know, drinks <laughs> where we can find movies that, uh, you know, have a lot of them. And based on how much Bogart used to drink, I guarantee you some of these other films will probably find their way into our schedule mm-hmm. before too long. Um, so the la- the next thing I wanted to talk about, my second shot was um, the kind of metaphor of, of Rick as a stand-in for the United States. Um, mm. I think that this is something that you and I caught pretty early on when we were watching this movie for the second time, but Rick has got to be like an allegory or uh, or an allusion to the United States not entering World War II until a couple of years after it started, right? I I feel like it has to be because he's this guy who just does not care. He only cares about, you know, not getting hurt and being himself. And um, the United States very famously did not uh, declare war on Nazi Germany when they invaded Poland and got declared war on by uh, the allies in, in Europe. They were, even though the United States fought on the side of the allies in World War One, they were like not, that wasn't really the foreign policy at the time because the United States was coming out of the Great Depression. Um, you know, the uh, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, had just been elected like the year prior to Pearl Harbor. And so, you know, there's all kinds of factors. We're not, this isn't a history podcast, not going to get into that, but I couldn't help but notice like that whole um okay you're you're a sentimentalist at heart and you're going to fight for the underdog. One of those themes about Rick is that he has spent a lot of his life just kind of fighting for the underdog. And that's why he according to the other characters in the movie ran guns into Ethiopia, so, mm-hmm. you know, which mm-hmm. is supposedly to help native Ethiopians um fight against c- colonial Italian people at the time. Um, and he fought in the Spanish American or sorry, not Spanish American war, the, uh, Spanish civil war on the side of, of the Republicans, uh, which were fighting against the fascist in that country. And a lot of American soldiers, like uh, a lot of Americans went over to Spain or who were in Spain at the same time, uh, to support that side of the war had a lot of things to say because apparently it was a very brutal, terrible, civil war um and it wasn't even their war to fight and a lot of people came out of that very jaded i mean just look at ernest hemingway one of the greatest you know american writers of all time he fought in that war also came out of it wrote like three books or (laughs) something like i know for whom the bell tolls is about that uh i think he wrote a couple other ones too um 
all about that experience. And there's like a Hemingway quality to Rick because he's just this guy who's like, you know, I'm very worldly and I've seen stuff and I don't need to concern myself with other people anymore based on how much I've seen. And meanwhile, he's getting all this pressure from outside forces to like come help and like be a good person at the end of the day, whether it's from Ilsa or whether it's from refugees who are seeking help from escaping into Bulgaria or whether it's from, you know, Louis, who is his corrupt uh, Vichy French partner in crime, so to speak. He's, you know, he's the opposite end of the coin. He's like, I scratch my back, you scratch, uh, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. <laughs> um they're all kind of pressuring him to like, you know, uh, you don't need to be here. You know, you're, you're here because not because you have some sort of like grudge against the world, but you're here for a reason. And it's, it's time for you to like admit that you're a good person and to leave, which they ultimately do at the end of the movie. But it takes them like an hour and 40 minutes to figure that out. Yeah. And doesn't he say something to him like, you? well, you've finally gotten involved or you finally become a patriot yeah. or something like that. <laughs> so that ultimately like makes your point that you're, you're making about Rick being like a stand in for America finally deciding to enter the war. And um, turn the tide of the war. Yeah. Significantly that and um, them appearing or them invading North Africa allies invading North Africa right around the time this movie came out is significant because, you know, that wasn't a coincidence that they released it at that time. And something you said just now also, I think, further, like, proves your point to me that, you know, Rick is supposed to be a stand-in symbol of the United States because, um, like you said, he always helps the underdog, which is something that America, you know, I guess gets that label of like we often intervene <laughs> to help underdogs yeah, or we, for, for better we started or worse. right exactly not not always a good thing not always a wholly bad thing it, it's very complicated mm-hmm. um, and the li- lines are often gray mm-hmm. um, but that's kind of the I guess bare bones label that we get often and then the idea that we start the country formed from a bunch of underdogs in a way trying to escape, you know, um, you know, we can talk about the declaration of whatever, but you know we'll what do I that mean? On the national treasure yeah. episode. Um, <laughs> the, the idea of underdogs. Yeah, definitely. And Rick, you know, himself being this person that left America is interesting because I feel like that's something culturally that Americans identify with as well as kind of this individualism, whereas a lot of, and also this can be for better or worse too, is like, oh, I'm going to go forge my own path, you know, and that's what Rick does. He leaves the United States and goes to some, you know, faraway country to start his own bar. Like it's a very individualist sentiment Mm -hmm. to do that in the first place as opposed to oh no i'm gonna stay in my home country and support my family and support the government and he's like nope i'm just gonna go do my own thing who knows his entire past we don't really know but Mm -hmm. it's a very like um i guess american thing to do right to go you know how many people do we know that go off and travel to find themselves, you know, a lot, and <laughs> especially in the, in the age of globalization. Yeah. And this movie is so globalist in its, in its like message, you know, mm-hmm. about how 
there's even a character who goes up to Rick in the bars is Signor something. He's an, I believe it is an Italian gentleman who is also engaged in the trade of, of illegal transit visas. And he tells him, you know, you can't hide out here forever. You know, the world isn't like that anymore. <laughs> he literally says something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And it's just hitting that, like, you can't be isolationist anymore, America. You have to accept that the world is connected. Yeah, I feel like we go through, I mean, this is, like, a, another thing, I guess, that we're, like, battling po- in politics right now, too. But it seems like we always ebb and flow between isolationism and then, and or the policy of isolationism, and then we flow back to the policy of getting involved in a lot. Then we flow back to isolationism. Then we go back to, like, it, it can kind of ebb and flow. And I think this movie kind of depicts that ebb and yeah, flow. Yeah, I think that's been foreign policy for probably the last hundred years yeah. or so. So, uh, possibly longer. Um, but yeah, Rick is literally an expatriate in the in the truest sense of the word. And then becomes a patriot, according to Louis, at the very end of the movie, which is a great ending, you know, and we can talk more about it after Triple Shot uh, when we do Last Call. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I do love the ending of this movie uh, a lot because it kind of brings all those things to the front in case you missed it. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes when movies do that, where they're like, here's the message and I'm going to hit you over the head with it a million times, um, it can kind of be really jarring and not very enjoyable. I think this movie does it though. It does it successfully in a way that isn't too overbearing and you're just kind of like, okay, it's a good message. You're fighting for freedom. Yeah. America. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So with that, um, let's go on to your third and final shot. Gosh, can't believe we're just (laughs) chewing through these, you know, this French 75 is on its way. Yeah. I think because we skipped the whole, like, so just to let you guys know when Patrick and I were watching this movie, we paused it like every two minutes to like, think about the history and like discuss it because both of us really are kind of nerdy like that and we wanted to understand fully the history and what was going on patrick's actually a very like big history buff and he like a lot of times will uh inform me like you know if i ask him a question about some historical event he usually knows off the top of his head but we were we were going like more even more into detail about you know this specific um casablanca area during that time period and what was going on with you know, um, the war and everything. So we, yeah. we were getting really into that, but we thought, you know, we probably don't want to, you know, put the listeners through all of that. Like, yeah, we are not um, going to go down the same Wikipedia the rabbit holes yeah, that um, we went through. So, but I think this. that just to say this real quick and then I'll get off it. Um, I think that it really informs like your understanding of the movie. If you just read up a little bit of history, um, going into it because i know the first time we watched this we watched it very casually and we didn't really get into the history aspects of it at all but the second time we were more watching it from like a research perspective and um i think that really helped you know inform my views of the movie and and all that so but yeah we won't go into all that for your guys' sake we'll put a few uh, wikipedia (laughs) links in the description (laughs) yeah so um fun stuff but so my uh, last take, um, getting off the history thing, is um, the, um, so I guess the idea of Laszlo, the character. Um, Victor Laszlo. <laughs> he's a really good character. Um, he is Ingrid's husband who she thought. Um, Ilsa's husband. Sorry, Ilsa's husband who God. she <laughs> who she thought um, was 
dead, Mm -hmm. um, captured and actually taken to a concentration camp because he was a political leader who um, had ideology against the Nazis and was, you know, leading a bunch of stuff. He's Czechoslovakian, I think. Correct. Um, And, you know, obviously has had a terrible you know, a lot being imprisoned in, in a concentration camp for a year. And while his wife thought that he was dead, she met Rick and, and fell in love with him. And then um, when she found out that he was actually alive, she had, of course, she left Rick, but she didn't want Rick to know the reason why she left him because she wanted Rick to leave Paris altogether and be safe and away from the Nazi occupation. And so it's a complicated, you know, love story with no, as, as Laszlo himself puts it in the movie, there's no real person at fault within this sort of love triangle because after all, um, Ilsa thought that he was dead when she met Rick and all that. It's not like she was having an affair on her husband or something like that. Correct. Um, but the I cast away problem, <laughs> I still, as I like to call it. <laughs> I still think that, um, Laszlo, like really, especially watching this a second time, I'm like, man, this guy just, he's such like, he's such a morally good character in that he just, you know, he's fighting from the very beginning for these ideals. He loves his wife. He's been through so much hardship. He finally comes out of it. And then what does he find? His wife is in love with somebody else. Or, you know, I, I think that for his sake, um, Rick tries to minimize it and be like, oh, your wife really didn't love me she's just doing you know pretending so that you guys could get the passports or whatever he said to him but uh, you know victor knows like he knows um but you know he's such a good character and so kind that he doesn't even care he's just like i love my wife i love freedom i want to help people i just you know i think his character is like just such a a sweet and loving and like uh also you know, important to history, you know, in this, in this version of history that he's trying to fight, uh, against the Nazis and, and mm-hmm. doing it in such a positive way that in by positive, I mean, active, he's, he's actively fighting against the Nazis by organizing groups to go against them and things like that. Um, it's just so interesting that he, you know, he's like the, the, the wall that's in the way of the two main characters, like Getting love together, story. Yeah. yeah. Is this, like the fact that Rick and Ilsa, you know, have this this love for each other, but they really can't be together because Ilsa is actually married to this guy who's like a almost like a Jesus figure because um, he's so like morally good or however you want to describe it. Um, it's it's just like very interesting. I'll to put me. it this way: this guy, I, I agree completely. It's it's an interesting character because he's probably like if you were to put all these characters on like a like morality chart yeah everybody is kind of near center probably except for laszlo who's like the like good yeah (laughs) he's all the way on the good side yeah if he's all the way on the good side and strasser the the nazi commander who's i mean the point is is around about saying fuck nazis all right so don't don't at me with this He's all the way on this side. Laszlo's all the way on this side because just as you said, I think he's there to give contrast to those characters that are in the middle. They are morally gray and they are like more interesting in that regard. Yeah, but, Rick and Ilsa are definitely gray characters. Yeah, and 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 
Laszlo is so good that, you know, he's here trying to, you know, negotiate with Rick, get passage for him and Ilsa to escape Casablanca because Rick is the only one with access to these visas by way of the plot. He gets access to two of these travel visas early on in the movie and he overhears the Germans singing a, a, a German song, um, The Watch on the Rhine, in the middle of the piano. They take over the piano from Sam, and now they're singing in this club, these Nazis in unison. Laszlo's so good, he's just like, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go and upstage this, like, he takes this as an affront, which, you know, it's, it, if you think about it as just some German singing, then I guess it's not that bad, but he takes it as you probably should take it, which is it's Nazis being patriotic about Nazi Germany in this particular case, even though that that's just a traditional, you know, German song, Franco-German song, right? It's like a um, a traditional song that's way older than Nazism, but that's not the point. The point is all about context. And we were kind of having a conversation about this in, in terms of national anthems and how context of those national anthems and how they're sung makes people feel certain ways so he just literally like interrupts them by getting the band to start playing uh the french national anthem right in in the middle of their song and then everybody in the bar most of which are french people or of french descent start singing the french national anthem and they drown out all the germans It's like a super ironic thing because at this point in history, Germany has like taken over France. They are occupying France. They've captured Paris. But you've got these people who are literally still like in the core of their being in another continent. And, you know, they feel so identifiably that like, you know, they need to to be patriotic in this moment because they they're their brethren, patriotic brethren in Europe cannot. And so they literally start screaming like, Viva la France, right? All this stuff. It's a powerful moment, all instigated by Laszlo, who like, he's just like, no, we're not having this. Like, that's how good he is. He's just like, I don't want these people to feel any more oppressed than they have to. Yeah. And I feel like we should talk about the the anthems a little bit more because that was a really, maybe we can talk about it when we talk about the ending, uh, because that was a like a really interesting point that you were, you and I were talking about yesterday, but you, I think n- noticing the music combined with the history have a little bit more interesting takes on it. But um, I think that another point, like, so like you said, Laszlo interferes to, to make this sort of political change, even in Casablanca by, you know, coming in and, and saying, no, we're going to go against this and sing our anthem and all of that. Um, he also, they even try to point out a possible flaw with his character when, you know, and he even says it kind of cheekily of like, oh, did you think that I was just like a political like guy who just all I care about is politics? No, I when, you know, he's kind of negotiating with um, Rick over the passports. He's like, no, that's not all I am. I actually love my wife and I'm actually a human being and I love my wife essentially more than I love politics, you know, because part of it, you kind of are thinking, well, maybe um, 
maybe it's okay for Rick and Ilsa to be together because maybe Victor doesn't actually love Ilsa as much as he loves his job and as much as he loves politics because Ilsa kind of said that that he was so involved in politics and that's really where he belongs is with politics and not with her, right? But, you know, then you find out later that no, like actually... Victor loves Ilsa more than politics and more than his job. So even that possible, you know, I wouldn't even call it a flaw because he has, you know, probably because he has one of the most important jobs. Right. Uh, <laughs> like ever. Yeah. But um, <laughs> to fight the Nazis. Right. But even that idea that he might love his job more than his wife is rebutted because um, it turns out that he loves his wife more than his job. Which makes him an even better character. Yeah, when he, he wants her passage to go to the United States. And I think the last point I'll make on this, his character, is that the reason why I think his such morally good character, I guess, is very interesting is because when you look at modern love story movies, even modern rom-coms or modern romantic dramas... When you have love triangles, often the one triangle member that, you know, they want the to, sad one. to sort of, you know, yeah, get out of the picture is usually there's something wrong with that person, like morally that you can kind of dismiss them and be like, okay, I, I guess it's okay for the other two to be together because this third person, you know, they've got some issues, right? Or you know, the third person dies or like something happens where they just can like kind of kick them out of the love triangle. Right. But Laszlo, you know, not, not so much. He's just like a great guy. Well, you yeah. Know? The twist is like they, they, Rick kicks himself out. Yeah. So it's very, I think you're right. It's very, it seems so fresh, even though this movie is one of the most classic kind of love stories of all time. It does seem like it's like a twist or a new take on mm -hmm. love stories themselves because, and I guess love stories have been told, you know, not just in movie form, but through, you know, fiction and storytelling plays for years and years before this. I mean, Shakespeare, come on. Um, but it's yeah, still really good. Yeah. I think that's what I mean. It, it, I guess it is a fresh take on the love story then, even though to us, it seems like it came out a long time ago. It's really not in, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. So for my third and last shot, I'll just quickly talk about the last of the main kind of characters um, to round out the cast a little bit. Uh, Louis Renal, who is played by uh, the actor whose name escapes me uh, right now. Uh, shit, what is his name? Oh, Claude Rains. Claude Rains plays uh, the corrupt French captain. Uh, and they ask him straight up, you know, this character, do you support... Vichy France or Free France? And he goes, well, you know, uh, I support whoever's in charge. You know, you guys are in charge, speaking to the Nazis. And um, they say, well, what if what if we weren't in charge? And he goes, surely that's not a possibility. Mm -hmm. uh, they start planting these seeds that, you know, maybe he's not um, all, uh, all black and white, like an evil character, um, because, you know, he has a close relationship with Rick. And in a lot of scenes, they're sharing... Uh, a drink or they're sharing information kind of trying to to give each other an advantage so that they can go about doing their job rick can go about not caring about anyone and and renal can go about um looking good in the eyes of the the nazi people who are watching over his shoulder um but they plant this seed of like okay well maybe he would be supportive of france if the situation were different um it doesn't make him in any of the reprehensible things he does any less 
forgiving. I mean, the guy's literally extorting refugees for sex, which is a, a plot point that they bring up so that they can get uh, that that ever so desirable freedom of, of leaving Casablanca to go to, to Lisbon and then eventually America. Um, so he's not a good person. He's not a good character like in the, in the, in the Victor Laszlo sense, but he is very interesting and he does kind of make a, 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 a justifiable, like an earned choice, if you will, I think at the end of the movie when he doesn't kill Rick over, you know, his desire to look good in front of these ruling Nazis. He, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't go that far. He doesn't cross that line. And characters that get close to the line without crossing them are, to me, the most interesting because those are the ones that you don't really know what they're going to do. Yeah. And that whole thing kind of comes as a surprise in, in the final scene of this movie, which we're about to talk about. But, you know, it's interesting that at the end of the movie, you know, you kind of come away feeling, well, that guy's an asshole, but... I feel like he's 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 a good pairing for Rick, who's been kind of the hero of the movie so far, and you don't really feel that strange about them leaving together as quote unquote friends. Um, and it's a really good uh, acting performance too. I think Reigns does a good job of of being like you know I I'm just a, a an I I have ideals, but I'm not going to ever tell you what they are. I'm going to do my job. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to do my job like a corrupt uh, bureaucrat would. So I just think that's super interesting. Had to speak about him. He has a lot of the funny lines in the movie where he's like, I'm just, he basically says, I'm going to go, you know, impress or I'm going to go kiss up to, to the Colonel real quick or to, to Strasser, the villain, the major, if you will. Um, So very interesting. And that kind of rounds out our, our main four, so to speak. So that's it for triple shot. Um, with that, we're going to go into the last section because I know we've been, both of us have been dying to talk about the ending <laughs> of this movie. Um, and in our final segment, we will. It's time for Last Call. All right. So, Marissa, where do you think the last scene really starts? Because I'll tell you where I think it starts. I think it kind of starts the last, you know, few minutes, everything kind of comes to a head. You know, you've got Rick and Ingrid and Laszlo um, all kind of in Rick's cafe getting ready to depart. Rick tells uh, Renault that he's going to betray them um, and kind of sell them out. And he's like, meet me, call off your watchdogs. Um, You know, you meet me at the cafe alone because then... They're not going to be as suspicious. He has like some reasoning for it. Um, and Renault obliges him because he trusts Rick and sneaks up on him about to leave the cafe with Laszlo and with Ilsa uh, ready to go and help them escape. Or so it seems, right? And then Renault comes out of the shadows and he's just like, you're under arrest. Rick was helping me all along. And they're they're caught by surprise because why wouldn't they? Rick didn't tell them this plan. And then Rick surprises everybody and kind of triple crosses Renault and holds him at gunpoint. And he's like, oh, I see now why you wanted me to call off my my guards and you wanted me alone because now you can keep me at gunpoint and allow the, these two to escape. Um, you know, and it's a, it's like a, lot, a multi-layered ending. Uh, I think that's kind of where it starts, but then... Yeah, there's like part one. I feel like there's like three parts to the ending. Uh-huh. And, and then part two would be, uh, what do you think, when they arrive at the airport? 
Yeah. So when they're at the airport and um, Rick is talking and saying goodbye to Ilsa, but then also talking with Victor and, and kind of just saying like, this is how it has to be. And, you know, go off without me. Um, I'll be okay. <laughs> and um, Ilsa's like, what about us? And Rick's like, we'll always have Paris, yeah. uh, which is another famous line. Yep. Um, and then part three, I think, is when the uh, German soldiers come into the scene and you think that, um, and this is after Ilsa and her husband have already left and basically... Uh, Renault has a choice of whether or not he's going to tell the German that Rick let them go and was part of this whole plot. Um, but he chooses not to, like you said, which is an interesting choice. Yeah. And, and, and to be clear, the first German that drives up is not the whole convoy. It's just Strasser mm-hmm. because, you know, he get, arrives on the scene first and he's about to try and stop the plane. But then Rick does shoot him. And then when the rest of his backup arrives and Strasser's dead and they're like, what the hell happened? You know, Louis tells them, or Louis Renault tells him, like, you round up the usual suspects, I think is what the mm-hmm. line is, right? Which is an interesting line because, you know, he was literally being held at gunpoint by Rick and now he's covering for him. Um, it's fascinating. And, it, I, and I didn't think about how that ending has its own little three-act structure in and of you itself. Know, almost a part four, too, because then at the end when... An epilogue. They say, well, we're going to go travel now and leave Casablanca, like you said. Renault and Rick leave together. And then you get that, perhaps the most famous line from the movie, which is... Uh, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I knew the, the beautiful... This is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I mean, I used to say that when I was a kid... <laughs> like to my friends yeah. as a joke, but I had no idea what it was from. It was just a line that you said to your friends, like mm-hmm. as a joke. But then, you know, when I saw this movie as an adult, I was like, oh my gosh, this comes from a movie from 1942. Yeah. <laughs> so there is so much packed into this jam packed ending. And um, you said it yourself, you've got that line. You've got, we'll always have Paris. We've got, uh, and I think the most famous uh, line is if you don't get on that plane, you're going to regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon. And for the rest of your life, Yeah, which is like every, (laughs) that was like the, the pre YOLO YOLO. (laughs) You need to do it now or you're going to regret it. Yeah. Um, And it's such an impactful line. I think that's Pumphrey's best, moment in the movie because the camera's got this shot on his mm-hmm. face and he's, you're just looking deep into his eyes and then it's like cutting to the other uh, shot reverse shot to like her face and his face and these two people are just indelibly mm-hmm. well looking like they just look <laughs> incredible on camera and so uh, it's going back and forth and the music is swelling and you're just like, oh man, I'm going to listen to every word this guy says <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's so good. It's like, it, and that I think is like the climax of that, of that scene because he convinces her to go with Laszlo and kind of abandon their thing. And he's like, that man needs you more than I do. Like we'll always have the great memories that we had in Paris together, but I'm going to be greater than myself. I'm going to sacrifice my happiness to this greater cause, which Laszlo has been doing since minute one. Mm -hmm. But Rick is finally like relenting to and going completely against what he's done the whole other times of the movie, which is I don't stick my neck out for nobody. Yeah. So it it comes to a head right there. And yeah, all of that, all of the themes and ideas 
in the movie. And it should be said that this happens in what? Like less than 10 minutes? Like yeah. the last like six or seven minutes when you're looking at the runtime, you're like, man, how much is left? I, I <laughs> Like we said, I, I'd only seen this the two times, the first time we watched it a few years ago and then the most recent rewatch. And I was like, man, there's still <laughs> a lot of stuff that we haven't gotten to and yeah. the time's running out. It's because they pack everything super tightly. And if that, yeah. if anything missteps, I don't think this ending works or is as memorable. Yeah, it's But they kind of nail it. It's interesting because that's really hard to do. Like, so I kind of have two things that bounce off of what you said. So one is that um, the whole movie Casablanca works really well because it's sort of this to us, I mean, it's historical, but back then it was just, you know, this story about, you know, doing, I, I guess, getting involved, doing something for others, going beyond your own self, mm-hmm. combined with the, the other part of the movie, which is a love story. And the ending takes both of those c- major components, which are kind of sort of fighting each other throughout the movie. It's like, is this a movie about like World War II or is this a movie about love? You know, and then at the end, it's like, nope, it's a movie about both. And we're going to combine them both in this like jam packed ending and kind of flawlessly put it all together. And that brings me to my second point, which is like what you said, the timing, this all this ending happens so quickly. And it's really hard to pull that off because a lot of times when you watch a movie and it, just suddenly ends with this sort of climactic scene. You're like, well, that was rushed or, yeah. <laughs> well, that really, you know, you could tell they just didn't know how to end it. So they just threw it all together at the end. Yeah. No, this one actually works somehow. It's like, it seems really fast, but it all works together. And I think a lot of movies now, they can't end at the climax. Like they they can't do that. They, they have a climax and then they have to have the 10 minute, you know, epilogue of like, well, what happens after the climax, you know, because people want to see everything that happens after. And and that bugs the crap out of me. Right. But, um, (laughs) but, you know, that's my own personal beef with uh, modern movies and books. Um, Like why the Hunger Games, for example, like why didn't they just spoilers, but why didn't they just uh, end it? You know, the books when uh, she shot the she, president. Yeah. Right. Like, why do you have, need this whole after story? Just no. The point should be the ending. Right. Okay. Sorry. But the. But baking oh. bread. <laughs> no. Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry. Tangent. But. So Casablanca. It's really hard to pull off an ending at the climax because a lot of viewers hate that shit. They're like, no, I want a nice pretty bow. I want 10 bows before the movie's over. But a movie that ends right around the climax and does a really good job of like just putting it all together in a swift motion but a powerful impact i think is such an impressive feat and i think there are other movies that end abruptly that aren't climaxes they're just an abrupt ending i also like those endings too but this is like a different thing i'm talking about you know the climax like you said of um the the twist that is revealed with um, Rick, you know, ending up giving his ticket so that these other two can go. Mm-hmm. And all the action also, you know, the gun, you know, the threat of the gun kind of, you know, for back then was a big heavy action sequence, I think, um, happening all at the same time, around the same time at the very end. You know, a lot of times now, movies aren't brave enough to do that. They'll have this big climactic battle sequence that lasts 20 minutes and then they'll have like 10 minutes wrap up. Yeah. And that's not the case here. This one starts and ends 
when you're just in the middle of everything, Mm -hmm. you know? And in a way, I think that was on purpose. And maybe I'm reading too much into it. You tell me, but I feel like that's a perfect, like for this particular movie, because this is a movie about people who are just passing through a place. Yeah. You don't get to know like their, their past and you don't really get to know if their future is going to work out for them. But you know, in this moment, they are trying to get by and they have highs, they have lows and Casablanca, the setting is, is a perfect like allegory, I think, for just how those people are trying to like make it in the world. And that's what Rick ultimately ends up doing at the end. Yeah. He's just like, you know what? I'm going to figure out my way a, a, a different way. I am going to put this thing like higher than myself, like we were discussing, but I'm going to kind of just travel and figure it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and uh, you don't get to know what's going to happen to him or what happened before. But in this moment, you know, this was all that mattered, right? Yeah, that's it, such a good point about like the idea of this being a place that people pass through. I didn't even think about that. But mm-hmm. and the only wrap up, because there is a little bit of a wrap up, but it's only two seconds. And it's just that famous quote, basically, where he's like, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. We're going to go off and travel. But even like you said, it's not quite a wrap up because we don't know what's going to happen with him. Yeah, we assume that he's going to go off to uh, fight more um, Axis powers in in africa because they mentioned brazzaville which is another city in africa right and uh he they talk about fighting the free with the free french there and and louis gonna go with him because he knows he's out of a job here once they realize that he totally you know didn't do his job (laughs) uh so uh, it's it ends on a really optimistic note and despite such a pessimistic setting and time period uh for this movie it's a nice contrast and it, it, it kind of makes you feel good about it at the end, even though like the jarringness of like the two people in the love triangle not ending up together, the two leads not ending up together, you know, it's kind of undercut by that that good feeling, that good optimistic ending. Um, and I, it's timeless, man. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's basically Casablanca in a nutshell. I loved rewatching this movie and even though it is almost 80 years old now, which is kind of nuts. Um, <laughs> I can't recommend it enough. Like it still holds up, still very good. It won Best Picture and Best Director at the Oscars for a reason. Um, and I don't think it was like one of those Oscar wins that people look back and they're like, nah, wrong move, wrong move. No, I, I think it's actually enduring and a timeless classic. So next week, we are going to be uh, going with another classic of Hollywood. Um, it's in a little, slightly older closer to the 60s 1959's north by northwest oh, oh i forgot we were doing that yeah, next which is i didn't realize it has a gibson cocktail g our g episode will be the gibson cocktail which is kind of like a martini but with some slight differences uh mainly an, an onion instead <laughs> of an olive garnish yeah uh, and he drinks one in, uh, Cary Grant drinks a, a, a Gibson in North by Northwest. North by Northwest is another masterpiece. Guys, yeah. I'm so excited about that. I thought for some reason, I thought we were doing this like way down the line, but I totally forgot that that was up next. So I'm really excited for North by Northwest. I hope that you guys give it a watch. Um, it might be streaming or 
yeah, just get it from the library, rent it on Amazon or something. Um, I know I've been saying this for every movie and, and before I was like, you don't have to watch every movie, but now I'm like, watch every movie. Oh, yeah. Um, but this is a great train movie. And by that, I mean, I love train movies. I'm like a weird weirdo about movies that feature because I've always wanted to stay on a train that has like a dinner uh, restaurant on there and where you can stay in your own cabin yeah. you know and ever you know also true, just like I, I just love train stuff I, it's my dream to go on a long train ride that i can stay overnight in and stuff and maybe multiple nights but um it's a great train movie and also it's just a great movie and the it's so fun it's such a good movie this is how much you like it there's like maybe one or two scenes on this movie that take place on a train and you're like, great train. Dude. That's how <laughs> effing good those scenes are, man. And and it's currently streaming on HBO Max. Oh, perfect. So okay. if you have HBO, please check it out. We'll be drinking Gibsons next week. We hope to see you. And until then, you can stay with us on social media to stay up to date on our latest stuff, see photos and recipes, uh, stay up to date with us on Twitter at movie underscore mixology or on instagram or facebook at momixpod m-o-m-i-x-p-o-d if you want us to read a question or a suggestion on air we will if you just write into m-o-m-i-x-pod at gmail.com momixpod at gmail.com you can rate and review us or follow us on spotify apple podcasts amazon music google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts we have had such a fun time talking about Casablanca and we will talk to you next week. So until next time, I think this is Here's the beginning of looking a at you, kids. beautiful podcast. Oh, we went for different quotes. We went quotes. for different quotes there. It still works. <laughs> They're both really good. <laughs> All right. <laughs>